You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always typical lydia today's show we're going to be giving you the film 15 years in the making the evil within 2017 technically technically the andrew getty spectacular yep this film is one of those things that has the horror community buzzing but it's one of those films where its reputation precedes it this long gestating project of a mad billionaire and what happened to him in his life. And then when his life ended, we have this thing. His And I feel the conversations around this film are more about where it comes from and the unusual circumstances, just the unusual production schedule of it, more so than even what the movie was itself. Before I even knew what this movie was about, I knew how it was made. It is kind of a weird trajectory that way, and you make it sound so much more alluring, you know, when you talk about where it came from and how it was made. And even, like, one of the first interviews I read about this with Sean Patrick Flannery, one of the stars, uh, he hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Even though it was just hitting VOD at the time. I was—I wouldn't say I was an early adopter because I heard about it like everybody else by seeing all this buzz about the movie going to be coming out. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in Michael Berryman. I like Michael Berryman. I, yep. You know, people have things to say about some of the roles he's chosen. and Not the roles he's chosen, it's the films that he ends up in are kind of like beyond b-grade a lot of the times i don't watch everything he's in but i do enjoy the films that he's in most people will be most familiar with him from the hills have eyes the original yeah as pluto yeah i particularly enjoyed him in devil's rejects because he's not a chicken fucker that we know for sure that is the most hilarious scene in that film and uh smash cut he's in smash cut too so i guess he's pals with the mayfair to a certain extent Maybe, yeah. Or they just had the bucks to draw in the awesomeness that is Michael Berryman. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Interesting looking fellow, of course, uh, and perfect for this sort of role. Mm-hmm. I think I, I'd love to see an interview with him about this role. He's been around films and filmmaking for a very, very long time. So I'm sure he's seen it fucking all. So I'd love to hear his take on not only the weirdness that we hear on in other interviews about how the the crews changed like underpants, the five-year filming schedule, the 10-year post-production schedule up until Getty's death. Like we hear all about that. We don't hear a heck of a lot from the actors. There's a few extras on the DVD that Chris had actually bought for me because he knew I was so in love with this and had watched the VOD twice immediately upon its release. So now I have it to watch at my leisure, which I have Mm -hmm. several times now. But there are some extras in there where people talk about working with Andrew, and he was was great, apparently. But I'd like to read some of the reviews about, not behind-the-scenes interviews, but interviews about people and their take on the final product. Mm -hmm. Especially Michael Berryman's. I would love to hear that. Mm. 
one of the a, a lot of times Michael will be put into roles where it's a scene or it's a couple of scenes. Most people will use him as stunt casting because he's so recognizable and he is such a uh, a welcome face to see within horror. But very rarely is he really asked to extend himself in his acting roles. Um, he's usually p- playing certain types of characters. This is a very subdued performance from him, and it's the most acting I've ever seen out of him. And I mean, I mean, he's it's all acting. But but what I mean to say is, it seems like somebody decided, oh, you're going to be a somewhat subversive character here, and you're going to have very subtle performances, and it's not going to be you're not a hillbilly, and you're not. A, a, a field mutant. You're a, you're a, you are legion for you are many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It must have been a role that enticed him from reading the script. Yeah, asked him to do something different. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder how long he was on set for. Those types of scenes, a few weeks maybe, but not not the brunt of it. Right? In a normal production. In a normal this is production, we're yeah. fi- Filming over five years. Yeah. That's what, like, I'd love to hear his take on it. I don't know if there is, I haven't done as much research as I probably should, um, but I also had to, was able to lean heavily on the Room Morgue magazine who had Michael Berryman on the cover not too long ago and a really wonderful article written by John Bowman and some uh, supplemental materials and sidebar materials mm-hmm. written by Bowman as well, which are quite touching and very illuminating and really, really um, good interviews, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. article and it's a wonderful uh, front piece for that. Mm-hmm. So you definitely there. are going to want to check out, at the very least, not the the current issue of Room Org, but the previous issue of Room Org, if you guys wanted to read that. But since we got him here, could you just maybe give us a brief synopsis about who this guy was and how this movie came to be? Getty, apparently, in some of the behind-the-scenes stuff on the DVD, has had made some shorts previous. I don't know if we'll ever see those or if they're seeable, if they're in within his estate, or if they've hit the cutting room floor hard when he started making this feature-length project. Uh, he did plan on making more films, which is the doubly sad part, I think, because he's a great filmmaker, or was. Um, he's the heir to the Getty estate, the Getty oil barons. Old money. Very old money. They had sold off to Texaco, and then a legion of trust fund kids were born, I suppose. Mm. There's a lot of infighting and intrigue. You can read quite a bit about Getty's past in one of the sidebar articles in the Rumor magazine that talks about the evil within. The other very recognizable Getty thing would be Getty Images, which is another facet of the Getty fucking legacy that there is. Um, anywhere you're online, they use stock photos. You're going to see Shutterstock is very popular, but even older and far more reputable and prestigious than them and used in newspapers and magazines worldwide is Getty Images for their stock. Andrew Getty himself, I don't think really contributed much to the legacy that is the Getty family. I really mm-hmm. don't think, I, I think he didn't make the news, really. I don't remember ever hearing about him in particular at all, ever, uh, until this film. So this would have been the thing he did, I suppose. And he did spend a lot of his money on drugs, from yeah. what I understand. He was a methamphetamine addict. 
And who knows what else he was into. You know, I'm not uh, going to turn it into an exploitative look at mm-hmm. poor Andrew Getty. I'm not sure, but I think Andrew Getty might have been the guy at the very beginning of the film selling tickets mm-hmm. uh, to the fun house or the carnival. Uh, but I'm not sure about that. One fun thing about Andrew Getty that is maybe more recent news, they're looking to sell the mansion that he had owned in L.A. that this film is made in, that this film was predominantly shot in. A wonderful old mansion that was in the Getty family for a long time that he bought, I guess, in the 80s or 90s sometime, that he bought off of the family. And it's worth a six-point-something million dollars, wonderful mansion. And it does have, like, tunnels underneath of it um anything that you see in the movie that's quite particular to this house is in actual fact there but the getty family is suing him a gordon getty i don't know what relation that is is suing him for or his estate for 14.1 million dollars apparently that he owns owns a family so when people say four to six million dollars of his own money that was put into this project. I guess it's four to six million dollars that were borrowed off of his estate, of his family's estate, and some sort of family money. I don't know what he would have been doing, aside from drugs, and living the fucking free and easy life of Riley all of his life, probably, that would have pushed him into owing 14.1 million dollars to the family. But the house itself, which would make a dent in that at least upon its sale, is willed to an ex-girlfriend, not the ex-girlfriend that found his body, but a previous ex-girlfriend, because I guess he hadn't updated his will, mm-hmm. which is really unfortunate. So it's all kind of tied up legally right now, but it is kind of cool. At the end of the day, this is the film that was shot in that house. Mm-hmm. So if anyone is that big of a fan and has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars per month to spend on a mortgage, they could probably buy it. It wouldn't be a bad idea. So despite being involved in a whirlwind life of money and Drugs and women, women, cars, Michael Berryman. He decided to use his money to make something, just a little wee something, a feature length film, something that his money and time would have allowed him to do, something that a lot of people dream about doing, this one story that everyone has in their back pocket. And he decides to make this film, and it would take 15 years literally the rest of his life and then later as almost like an old message in a bottle released into the world after he'd already passed like a message in the bottle I like the, i like that imagery it's a lot better than you know what what it is in in reality <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah if he wouldn't have been toiling away at it if he would have maybe let other people in which is fucking absurd to say because you saw the list of credits in this film mm-hmm. but if he would have let somebody else maybe have a little more control over this final cut of the production or you know whatever it was that he was noodling with as far as effects it might have come out while he was still alive it would have been able to see people's reactions to it i i was talking to people about this last night the idea that one of the things that holds a lot of people back in creating anything is this idea and and they throw this word out i'm a perfectionist i am a perfectionist and that's how come this takes me so long, or I'm a perfectionist, and and so nothing seems good enough to me, and so I'm constantly rewriting things, or I'm redrawing things, or whatever have you. My response to that is sometimes you need to include others, because when you're including others, you include their possibly good ideas. But furthermore, you need to learn to let things go. You need to be fine with things not being perfect sometimes or not 
exactly how you envisioned it. Learn to manage your expectations. Learn to compromise. He wasn't willing to do that. Or he was lying. Or he was lying. Because a lot of people that say, well, I'm a perfectionist. That's why it's taking so long. I think they're just playing Netflix. Or playing Netflix. Yeah, watching Netflix, playing video games, playing with themselves so while they watch Netflix. I, I think that, that comes into the overall problem of procrastination, right? How do you find the time for things that you're passionate about? You make the time. That's how you do it. That's how I find the time in my week to do the things that I do. And that's how you find the time in the week to do the things that you do. And so on and so forth, right? I suppose the silver lining in all of this is that it was released at all, even though he doesn't get to see it. Yeah, Michael Luceri was one of the producers of the producer. He he brought us The Astronaut's Wife. It's a film I've never seen, but I hear it's got some creepy edge to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He was the one that that forced this through and Mm -hmm. made sure it was released, which, you know, thank you Mm -hmm. for that because... Uh, I have a lot of fun with this movie and a lot of fun thinking about it. And it stands for a lot of things. It stands as a statement on a lot of things, I think. Um, and if on its face value, if you just want to take it on face value, it's a fun horror movie. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of fun with this. I do often wonder what he was left with, though. Uh, we were talking about this once we'd finished the movie. Is wh- At what point did he pick it up? Um, after 10 years in post, 10 years, it was fully colored, apparently. All the colorization was done. And probably a hell of a lot of the sound editing, they'd come in and done a whole bunch of extra ADR during the five years of filming. So for 10 years, he had every puzzle piece he needed. And half of it was already ready for the final edit during that time. So what did Mr. Luceri end up with? Mm -hmm. Was it a dog's breakfast? How much of this did he contribute? How many of these special effects needed to be completed? Because that was another thing that he spent that... Getty spent almost all of his time doing was perfecting these effects, which aren't bad. Mm. You know, you got to admit, but I don't know where Getty ended and where other people began. It's hard to say. You see all the time in filmmaking things getting, quote unquote, saved in editing or an edit of a film being vastly different to what a director or creator or writer had envisioned. That's why there's director cuts of things. That's why there's really fun fake trailers of like The Shining as a love story and things like that. And Elf as a horror film. Yeah. You can change a lot about what a film is and the message that people will actively receive in it through editing. So it's, it really depends whatever he was left with. And I'm sure we'll never know unless someone decides to spill the beans. Maybe that people in that position might, if it was a dog's breakfast, if it was something that was virtually unwatchable and they cobbled it together in a different way, shape or form, maybe they even had this idea of finally we can tear it out of his fucking hands because he's dead finally. And now we can actually put a filmmaker's eye on this. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, for all we know, this is the equivalent of me giving my little cousin the Player 2 controller on the Nintendo and saying, look how good you're doing playing Super Mario Brothers while I'm actually controlling everything, right? It's it's hard to say if he just sat in a chair. But from what I understand, he was very hands-on. He was a nice guy. And... In the best possible light, this could be a case of wanting to edit it as little as possible. We're talking frames or just the last finishing touches. They're always so vague 
in post-production about what they're actually doing, right? We don't know exactly how much that he did. Maybe he, they did fucking nothing. Yeah, too. maybe it was all wrapped up pretty with a bow and yeah. uh, they spent a year or two just trying mm. to secure distribution. Yeah, yeah. That could have been all that he had to do. Yeah, right? Just I, the I, business aspects of it. Yeah, I don't really know. Again, it's either the it, the news isn't out there and no one asks or I just haven't looked hard enough. So yeah, it's interesting yeah. to me, though. There's a lot of little facets of this is that, that are interesting to me. And like I said, where Getty ends and where this film begins, uh, you can see that in the characters. You see that in a lot of the effects. You see that in a lot of the dream sequences. And some actors saying that there was a lot of Andrew in all of this. There was a lot of these dreams were pulled right from his mind. A lot of these problems were pulled right from his life experience. Mm-hmm. So it is just a fascinating character study on a guy that's unfortunately dead. So we don't really get his take on it. True, but it's certainly fun to speculate. And I think that adds to the allure and the mystery of the film a little bit. Because you can quite clearly hear his voice through this stuff. Especially the opening narrations and some of the things that the demon reflection is saying. You can hear the creator speaking through that those seem to be genuine thoughts and and i think the reason why a lot of these scenarios seem pretty familiar it's probably because he was it was pulled from his life or people that he knew or and or it was his genuine feelings on things the house has a lot of play the house isn't as much of a character and people say this about lots of haunted house films where this house doesn't actually you know, do anything, but it does offer something and it offers all these little alcoves and Mm -hmm. offers the visual twist, if you will, of the spiral Mm -hmm. staircase. And it offers this prohibition tunnel. Um, So it doesn't actually actively do anything as a character, this house. It doesn't like come to life or trap people in it. But uh, Getty grew up in this house. Mm -hmm. So of course, this is just like you said, if someone has one story in them, this was that story and it has every facet you could imagine of his lifestyle somehow reflected in among it i mean it's his ancestral grounds we're looking at the walls and the floors and the ceilings that captured his imagination as a child and we've all had those moments in the houses that we grew up in where oh what if the the particular parts of a house that might scare us as children the particular parts of a house that we might feel safe in the particular parts of a house that maybe we could envision a scene from a movie happening or your childhood fantasies whatever those might be taking place within this space, all of that would have been within these walls, which makes it pretty cool. There's even a line in there about um, having a dream, but a house, uh, a room in in your house that doesn't exist. I've had those dreams and I love mm-hmm. those dreams and mm-hmm. dreams like that fuel my fiction too. So yeah. I can, I can totally see where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, just a quick aside, pl- quick pluggery of mm. my fiction speaking of fiction and independent artists much like andrew getty who are toiling for 10 years on a project yeah yeah. i know someone else that's pretty damn independent pretty damn i am more independent than i was a week ago i'll tell you that uh the rights for night face have been reverted to me so they no longer belong to postmodern press anymore and i am the sole holder of the rights to that Mm -hmm. book now uh which is fun Right, because I could very... do whatever I want with that. I could burn every copy. I could make a film, a la Andrew Getty, in my you know six bucks as opposed to six million. Well, that allow me to officially congratulate you on owning the thing that you created. Yeah, thank you very much, <laughs> sir. Uh, it's cool. It, it lapsed for a little bit, but it hadn't been formal till now, and 
there's a new cover. There's a new release. I have it under my own Amazon now. So it is distributed still. Mm-hmm. And it's still going to be in paperback and Kindle. Um, no audiobook yet. But that has been requested. What audiobook you're going to get mm. is Pray Light Eve 1 and 2. will be out probably in the next month or two. Something like that. Uh, there's a wonderful narrator that I'm working with named Shannon Tucker. Mm-hmm. I got to hear a little snippet of the, the Jack story. Yeah. That yeah. Liddy and I read to you a few episodes back, and it sounds quite wonderful. It does. She's doing a good job so far, and we'll see. You know, well, there'll be quite a bit of back and forth and quite a bit of my hair being pulled out and the quite new art that I get to make and more promotion stuff that I get mm-hmm, to do mm-hmm. and back and forth. So that'll be fun. Yeah, and they can pick that up on Audible. And Kindle. Yeah. And iTunes. Mm-hmm. It'll be everywhere. Yeah. And I'll harass everyone about it. Oh, yeah. We'll so. put it into your face. Oh. That's what I've been doing this week, all all week, is um, doing audiobook stuff and night face stuff. It's been, it's been super fun. Unlike Getty, I don't have millions of dollars to pump into my projects. Mm-hmm. But at least I do have a nice home to relax and not quite as nice as his multi-million dollar mansion, but it does make it worth at the end of the day. That's true. And also, the even though you don't have millions of dollars to spend on your products, I could easily argue that the quality and entertainment is of equal value because it doesn't cost someone millions of dollars to watch this movie, and it certainly is not going to cost anyone a million dollars to read or listen to your literature. And maybe there isn't as much of me in my work as there is Andrew Getty in The Evil Within. But you can't help that because things do come from your dreams. Things do come from your life experience. So there is a lot of that. So I can I can understand feeling that close to your work, although I'm getting better at letting it fucking go. I, I, I would argue, and I don't mean to go back to your old writing and stuff, but I mean, I've read a lot of your stuff over the years, and I definitely see you in Nightface for sure. I think that a lot of the thoughts that some of the characters have seem like genuine thoughts. I think especially they're Lydia thoughts. They're Lydia thoughts, especially the idea of sitting and having a coffee, watching people, what you might think of people's styles and hair and the music, the mu- like all the music that's within that tome. Are you kidding me? Like that is <laughs> if, if you want an idea about what. Uh, uh, the, the types of people that, that a teenage Lydia might have wanted to have met uh, uh, back when she was in high school. Uh, yeah, those are a good reflection of some of those characters that were created. And then we jump forward because it was 10 or so years when you started writing the second part. And, you know, a lot of that is happening in in uh, Ottawa and, uh, and, and in and around the local Ontario here. I was like, yeah, yeah, I definitely see you in all, in all that stuff. Maybe... In in uh, like Prelide Eve, a little less, but I still think that the reflection of so many characters' outlooks and are are more. It's so in your wheelhouse of interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you could you could get a perfect picture of you from Prelide Eve, but Nightface. Oh yeah. Oh, oh well, okay. I, I can't argue with you. It's your it's your it's your opinion, right? But yeah. like, I I don't ferry people quite. 
as as diligently down that river sticks as Andrew Getty. I I 100 I agree with you 100 percent with that. I mean, this guy is monologuing to us. My God, and even you know, I really hope that that's him at the beginning as the ticket salesman. I really, really do. It looks like him, yeah. and it would make so much sense. A person is not credited um, amongst the fucking giant roll of credits. But like all the best boys. Oh my god, get a grip, man. Get a grip. Get a grip. You want a grip? We got like a hundred of the fucking yeah. things. Yeah. Oh my god. The drivers. The drivers get caught in their own fucking traffic. There's so many of them. Once you finish watching the credits of this film, kids, there's a second roll of credits. You know, they've got the um the title treatment credits yeah, and the stars and, and stuff all that like kind that. of stuff. And then they start with the actual credit roll and it's a testament to a film that took five years to create and plus, you know, 10 years after and switched crews over and over and was had some like post and things done at different facilities and a lot of it done at his house where I'm sure that a lot of these assistants were just in and among all, all day for days and months and years. It, it looks like the film changed hands in terms of the crew working on it dozens, if not hundreds of times in some cases. Yeah. I, very rarely is there a singular credit. Uh, we're talking everything from camera operators to producers to drivers to grips, whatever. There's six craft services and a caterer or something. Yeah. Five craft services and a caterer, yeah. for an example. And the amount of just like the big ones that we noticed that would take up the whole screen and then some mm-hmm. of, of grips and drivers and things. Assistants to every assistant. And it's insane. It's yeah. a little fucking insane. Yeah. So I guess it's also a testament to say, like, where people talk about, you know, Deepers Creepers 3 isn't one man's film. It's a film of of thousands of people, potentially. So you can't, like, poo-poo it for that one man because it is a creation of a a team. A village has brought this film to light. Um, A couple villages, a small zip code brought this. He thanks the entire LAPD for security. All of them. (laughs) Just the LAPD. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A couple, like, security people. Sure, a good fleet of them and the LAPD. Wow. Yeah. Okay, sure. You can thank the LAPD, but he just lists them as a credit. Although the ticket master at the very beginning is not credited. And unlike many films where you look back at certain scenes and be like, wow, that must have cost a pretty penny. Or wow, the, the, the team that did this did really good. You look at the beginning of this film and they're in the carnival. It's a little dream sequence with a little young, tiny Dennis and his mother going to the carnival and taking the dark ride. But you look at it and you're like, okay, Andrew Getty paid for this. One dude wrote this, basically created it entirely, and paid for all of this. So he found this location that is this cracked dry desert and put carnival rides in it and sort of like isolated carnival rides. And there's no people milling about. It's wonderful. It's probably like four people in this whole carnival. Um, there's nothing around but desert. It's really a surreal look. And I love the beginning of this. But but in the back of my mind, unlike any other film, I'm thinking this one dude just shelled out. He's like, I need a zipper. I need this. I need that. I need a carousel. I need these stands. Like, how much would it cost to have, like, what, Conklin shows? Ringling Brothers? <laughs> just- I have no idea. I was thinking about that as well, just to get to rent carnival equipment. What would that cost you? I, I guarantee you what he did was it was a carnival that exists and he said, yeah, we're going to, this is your setup space. So do me a favor, take all these rides out. No one's going to ride them. Just set it all up like they would ride them and then park all your shit over there. Cause I'm shooting here 
and then did his shooting for, you know, a week or however long that would have taken. And then, all right, you're done. You can pack it all up and get out of here. Yeah. If they happen to be coming through or maybe he caught them in, in, when they're on their way to Florida to park for the winter or something. Like, I don't know. But it just must cost a crazy amount of money. But it's not that's something that would cross my mind with any other film. Because I'm like, yeah, they shell out. Whatever. It's a set. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or oh, they probably added that digitally or or however they do it, right? Yeah. They called up a friend that owned the carnival. and Yeah. Maybe they were throwing this stuff out anyway. You sponsorship. Know. You know, yeah. there's a sponsorship deal. But with this one, I just it, it just bends my mind. Especially because we get the, the fun sort of excuse of, like, he filmed most of this in his house. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I wonder if, he, if the Gettys own the Overlook. Or whatever they were calling the Overlook, where that club is. A country club? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Anyhow. We've been talking for what feels like a century, but we haven't actually said what this fucking movie is even about. We're just like all the articles. The 15 years in the making, this podcast. What is this film even about anyways? Fuck, man. I don't know. It was such a mess. It was such a visual mess. I'm just like, I don't even know what's going on, man. Like, I don't know anything. This movie is just, it's fucked, man. It's totally fucked. So Lydia's teasing because of some criticisms from the the rags. This movie doesn't know what it wants to be. This movie's all over the place, Wes. It's one of the, yeah. A lot of the complaints about this film that I've heard are that it's, all over the place, it's difficult to follow, etc. I've heard that it inexplicably zooms through a hab trail for no reason at all. Uh, I mean, maybe, but I don't know. I'm here to tell you that I have never professed to be the smartest human being on Earth. I find this film quite linear and easy to follow. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It, it leaves very little for interpretation aside from a very remedial reading level as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not just trying to say that this film is stupid. What I'm trying to say is watch better. Yeah. Watch better. (laughs) Thank you very much for that because it is not convoluted. It is linear. It is fairly simple. It is fairly fucking simple. And he lays it out for you a lot. Mm -hmm. He lays out what is happening and the plot. Yeah. And it's not that subtle. It's not that fucking subtle. Um, but I, I'm glad you're not stupid, Wes. You're not stupid at all. You're pretty smart. You're really smart, actually. You know what rules are real and what rules are fake. I do. <laughs> That's how come you can't trick me into killing dogs or cats or children or the hot ice cream girl. But I can tell you who can be tricked. Our man, Dennis. Dennis. What a spectacular performance from Fred Kohler. Oh, my gosh mm-hmm. i was so sold and you know we're gonna get into like story time and i incidentally the um working title of this was the storyteller mm-hmm. so here i'll tell you a little story i am really sold by this performance on every level um not just because it is like a cool thing to see an actor play a developmentally delayed adult versus um this like scheming insidious being on the other side of the mirror at the same time. A very malevolent presence. Very, very, very dark. And he plays it very straight, too. So to see him flop between the two is is cool. It's fun acting acrobatics. Uh, Yeah, that's impressive, too. But what's really impressive to me is just how much study he must have done or that he must have had somebody who has had a traumatic brain injury in his family or as a friend or something or spent a fucking couple months in a care facility to, to learn the mannerisms of somebody with a developmental delay. 
Um, my grandmother had one of the first halfway homes for the Ontario Hospital at the time. I've probably told this story before about living with schizophrenics. I grew up with a bunch of geriatric schizophrenics in my home. But there was one, Pearly, who was nearing 70 years old, I think, when she was with us. And she was this big, strapping, doughy woman uh, with super tightly permed. She liked her hair very tightly permed. Okay. So she looked like like this little white afro. It was so weird on this giant moose of a woman. Um, same mannerisms, same, you know, temper, same sort of desire to keep things the same in her own space and things like that. Same emotions, um, same behavior, same everything. So he channels this particular person, let alone just what human bodies are like, typically do uh, behave as when they have suffered a traumatic brain injury uh, to a T, to an eerie T. Uh, it's really wonderful. And I like the introduction to Dennis that we get because we get monologue, we get voiceover, description of a dream sequence. Um, and then he apologizes right away because his out loud voice isn't as eloquent as his inside voice. Mm-hmm. And then we meet Dennis in all his glory, who is this um, victim of a, of a brain injury when mm-hmm. he was very, very young. And he just plays it so well. So, so well. We're introduced to this world where Dennis lives with his older brother in this mansion. John, played by Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah. And John is dating a lady named Lydia. With the best name ever. Like, she just <laughs> has a fucking cool name, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and... Same name as Marilyn Manson's dog, incidentally. Really? Yeah. The more you know, guys. The idea is that, well, they got this house. John's very interested in selling it. But he wants to sell it as a summer home, so he wants to be furnished. Within the house, there's an old prohibition tunnel. They used to traffic and stow booze. And within that was a lot of antique furniture, quite valuable. And a lot of it's getting restored and a lot of it's getting put around uh, to make the house more of a showpiece. Yeah, he wants to kind of get rid of the habit trails because the hamsters stink. And he wants to like tidy up the house to show it, to sell it. And he's sort of keeping this a secret from Dennis. Because, mm-hmm. of course, he's very territorial. You know, his whole world is contained within this house. Yeah, and, and in particular, his room. It, it, you tell someone with that capacity that this is your space, the second you try to incur on that space, they will, much like a child, say, well, you said that this was my space, and now you're trying to take the space away by very subtly almost erasing his brother's imprint on the place by putting a chair and... A, a mirror. A mirror. And I I don't like the chair, but I hate the mirror, Dennis mm-hmm, says, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's, it carries a lot of weight. He's, you know, if someone isn't familiar with somebody with um, brain injuries or d- the different ways that uh, brain injuries can exhibit mm-hmm. with different severities, too, and different comorbid disorders, think of somebody who is extremely OCD and possibly autistic and has a temper. You don't want to fuck with their space. And that is exactly what John has done. You know, it might be disruptive enough that John has a girlfriend, mm-hmm. but Dennis has gotten used to this idea for the most part. But to fuck with his space is insulting. And it sets him off pretty bad. And they actually have a bit of a fight. They do. And the fight gets physical to a point, And that is, uh, that's foreshadowing for, for things to come. But... What the the, the very uh, astute observation of Dennis uh, through his limited ability to communicate 
is that his brother seems to purposefully try to confuse him by using words that he can't really understand. And you, we can't have a discussion. I can't argue with you because you use these words and you talk circles around me. So he's saying, what's the point of even trying to argue with you, right? It's a very mm-hmm. astute observation from someone. So you understand that Dennis has a pretty good logical mind and can understand when he's being talked down to by his brother. He understand, he, He's not uh, obtuse to how he is perceived by other people. He knows when he's being tricked and very um, plainly says, you knowing big words doesn't mean you're smart. It means you know big words. Yeah. Which, you know, he has a couple really good lines like that that mm-hmm. let you know that he knows that you're lying and he knows that he wants you to know he knows the score. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows exactly how much he can understand. Now, John is in a position where he wants to take care of his brother. His his brother is kind of his whole world to the point in which John feels that he has lost much of his own identity. And a lot of people that have to do long-term care for people of their own family members, either through... Uh, fetal alcohol syndrome or any sort of mentally uh, delayed uh, reason or Alzheimer's for the elderly. Uh, Because my uh, grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, uh, suffered from Alzheimer's quite badly. And so a lot of the conversations that John was having are eerily familiar to someone like me. These are the conversations that my family would have where it becomes a matter of at what point do we have to succumb to the idea that we are not equipped to take care of this person to the degree in which they need to be taken care of, but you don't want to just put them somewhere, anywhere. You want to put them in the best place, and honestly, not at all, because of the extreme guilt you would feel. We learn later that John has even more reason to feel guilt than the average person who would just be faced with this circumstance. Even more so, I'd I'd venture to say, not that I know, but more than um, a parent, you know, Mm -hmm. that that was had a child that had birth defects, Mm -hmm. feels that they owe their entire life and does owe their entire life to the children if they've chosen to have children in the first place, no matter what sort of child they have. Yeah. Um, I think even more so. I think John's really um, about the height of owing every, like he says, every single minute and every cent he makes to Dennis. And quite honestly, it's not him being dramatic at all. No, and I, and I don't think that it's coming off in a dramatic tone at all. It's very quiet conversations. It's not these dramatic fists to the air, ruining destiny type conversations. He's sitting slumped back. He's saying, I don't know. And, and when he gets into a venting state in which he is com- complaining about his lot in life, People try to offer him solutions, but he doesn't want solutions because the solution is to put him someplace yeah. as opposed to just taking care of himself. Now, that might be taken out of his hands entirely, regardless of what he feels about something, because there's child services involved. Yeah, Mildy. Mm-hmm. Mildy of no last name that I could discern, but Mildy is fine for both names. M- Mildy Stuffy Bottom. That's probably... <laughs> Her last name. Missy Glasses Pants. <laughs> Miss, 
Mildy. What a name. Mildy, Where they come yeah. with the fucking name Mildy. Yeah. Uh, I highly doubt that anyone in the Getty family had dealt with Child Protective Services. Um, but they may have. Mm-hmm. And she could be channeling someone who actually exists. And I, I kind of think she is. Mildy. My God. A headmistress, some wet nurse he dealt with as a child. I have no fucking idea. But Mildy. Played by the same girl that did... Um, her name's Kim Darby, mm-hmm. played Deborah Strode in Halloween 6, of all things. And I only really paid attention to this because her death is one of my favorite Halloween deaths outside of the part one and two. Um, and I kept trying to think of, like, who is it in which Halloween that somebody's rustling through clothes that are hanging on a line outside and Michael Myers is there chasing them and their death results in blood splattering up on the clothing. And I couldn't remember exactly which part of the franchise this had come from, even though he is looking at Laurie in a previous installation through blowing clothing on a hanging line. Yeah, that's from the first one. Yeah. yeah, but that's not the one that I kept thinking of. It was actually this death, Mildy's death Mildy's in death, Halloween yeah. 6, which is pretty a pretty fun death, actually. Ooh. But yeah, Mildy. Mildy comes and has a meeting with John. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that they get some sort of fucking privacy, even though she's being a complete bitch. I wish Dennis would have heard all of this in a way. But mm-hmm. uh, he seems to know what's going on, whether he overhears these conversations or not. Mm-hmm. He does. And that is because of this presence that has attached itself to Dennis, let's say. This portal, this point of contact seems to be the mirror itself, at least at first. Yeah, later on, it seems to be able to travel from mirror to mirror or just be within his own mind entirely. This this strange mirror that had existed for years untouched within the basement calls to him in a premonition, and then it ends up in his bedroom. His brother finds it, likely not by accident, and it gets refurbished and put back into the property. In a lot of stories about demon possession, real or fake, uh, however you want to look at it, the objects in which a demon can gain access to a person to attach itself to a living person, for you to give you the opportunity to let you uh, to let it in to your life. It's kind of the vague thing that people will say, giving it permission to have access to you, because what a demon wants is to not be in the realm that it currently resides in. It wants you to let it out, and it needs you to let it out. And to do that, it needs to trick you. It needs to corrupt you, and it needs to take you over. What he has encountered, and this is Michael Berryman's character, and it's very slow at first. We get this wonderful scenes. If you ever want to know all the different ways that you can shoot a mirror, Oh my god, yeah, it's kind of a master class on how mm-hmm. to shoot a mirror and get away with it. My favorite scene in this in this film altogether is the initial conversation that he has with this entity that is his reflection, where he's lying on his back and he when he's talking, he holds the mirror away and the way the camera operates he, it looks like he's just sort of staring up at the ceiling and then he pulls it back and now we see the reflection, and it's just him, it's just his reflection, but because of the position of his arms, it almost looks spider-like, it almost looks like it's holding onto the ceiling, and that is where this 
entity is revealing, oh, it knows what conversations John and Lydia are having at the country club, way Mm -hmm. far away, and the types of argument that they're having, what they're talking about, and of course doing the demonic thing of saying the most twisted and evil glass half empty conversation or or points that you could think anyone was making right this per- they don't like you they they think you're a burden you're a drooling a drooling mongoloid, mongoloid yes. and a big drooling mongoloid and they're not exactly having that conversation these are no. not quotes uh they are talking around him getting some sort of permanent care perhaps mm-hmm. what's going to happen when they want to have a, a life together mm-hmm. you know it, it's big conversations with big big wide brush strokes they're not talking about the drooling mongoloid but that's what this reflection is telling them to further corrupt dennis and to drive a wedge between dennis and john mm-hmm. as well because right away when john comes home dennis confronts him with, with this do mm-hmm. you think i'm a retard and do you think i'm a big drooling mongoloid Mm -hmm. which john sort of makes a joke about in a way but he doesn't know what's going on in dennis's mind this is just an outburst in in his point of view and he's probably used to it because dennis has a lot of time by himself and you don't know what the hell he's doing he's sitting in his room thinking about things and then his brain gets mixed up as far as john's concerned and then he comes out with these wild accusations and you just laugh it off because this is one of a million other conversations that they've probably had. Or if he's overheard something. Maybe he did overhear when Meldy was there talking about him being taken away or that he should be in proper care. And, you know, could have misconstrued something or only half heard something. And he's been stewing about this for a while. They probably had arguments like this before. And they're brothers because that's like brothers argue. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Siblings fight. Um so it's not unusual, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but John doesn't really understand how really unusual it is. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't even seem to notice that Dennis doesn't have a problem with the mirror anymore. No, because, and but I mean, in a way, that's exactly what he wanted. He just told Dennis continuously in their first argument about the mirror, a couple of days, you're going to love the mirror. And just give it a couple of days. You're going to love this mirror. And the second, all he really wants is for Dennis to shut up about the mirror. The mirror's in this room now, because I say so. Mm-hmm. And you can keep your smelly hamsters. And it's, it, he definitely seems like, well, the matter's closed, because he's not bringing up the mirror anymore, mm-hmm. which seems to be what he wants. When Dennis is being invaded more aggressively by this presence, he first interprets a lot of these things as bad dreams, which they are. He asks his brother, what do you think about the idea that a dream is someone else telling you the story because his earlier interpretations of dreams were that it's a story that someone that you're telling yourself but how can you scare yourself how could you surprise yourself you can't tell a joke if you know the punchline or you can't laugh at a joke if you know the punchline rather So then maybe these stories, these nightmares that he's having are being told to him by another person. Which is a deeply philosophical idea. It is a very philosophical idea. And also that is a dream within a dream. And we're getting a clear idea of what this presence looks like. Michael uh, Berryman's look is very unique. And really all they've done is paint him gray. (laughs) Yeah, they have. But it's very effective as, yeah, this is the demon. He has this uncanny valley look about him. And you don't really have to do much, right? Oh, he's a demon of some kind. I get it. Now, he identifies, he first tries to trick 
Dennis by, well, this is you. Your reflection is telling you these things. These are conversations that he's having with himself, being all nice and sweet at first. You're so funny. And then he's starting to put chaffed in his reliance on other people by saying, this person doesn't respect you. Lydia's trying to get rid of you, et cetera, et cetera. This is going down a dangerous path that we've seen in a lot of real life serial killer cases where people are talking about this urge to kill building almost from this outwardly presence. And it starts off a way a lot of these scenarios start off. With your neighbor's dog telling you to kill the the people in the cars because they're laughing at you. Yeah. You're a virgin. Exactly. Berkowitz, you fucking weirdo. Yeah, or something like <laughs> I think, that. I think it's weirder that he's really religious now. But anyway, the point is is that um, we, we, we get a sense that this demon needs him to kill. Now, this is part of a, a classic demon trick of corrupting your soul. Dennis could be thought of as a fairly innocent person up until this point. I mean, hasn't even been bare naked with somebody, probably, for all we know. And so he's as chaste as chaste can be, and he's like a good guy. He's never really done anything bad. He's just, you know, a, 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 almost a prisoner in his own ho- a mind, and therefore a prisoner in his own house. He doesn't really do anything. But let's change that. Uh, he needs to be smarter and he knows that he has the capacity to be smarter. He feels like he's getting smarter every day and he's smarter than people uh, interpret, but he needs to prove to other people that he's smarter. Now the best way, as we all know, to prove somebody that you're intelligent is to prove that there are rules in the world that are actually tricks to keep unintelligent people down. And if you circumvent those rules, you prove that they don't make sense and then you're above those rules and that is how you're intelligent. And you'll show people that you're getting smarter. Because they're in on it. Every every smart person knows that these rules are not the same. So you don't kill animals, but wait a second, you eat meat. They feed you meat as a clue to tell you that killing animals is okay. So what's the difference between killing, oh, I don't know, your neighbor's cat, as opposed to killing a, a, a cow that you'll later eat as a hamburger. What's the difference? And Dennis is somewhat reluctant, but yeah. not quite reluctant enough. But I buy it. Mm-hmm. I buy it entirely because of the conversation they're having. Uh, I buy it entirely because of all the conversations they've had thus far. I buy it entirely because of the way that Dennis has reacted so far to the small tricks that this demon has pulled when they're drawing pictures of him and this girl that he likes and how the picture keeps changing to be something a little more like cruel or mm-hmm. unusual yeah. or it's almost painful. Like he's playing um, murder tic-tac-toe. He's trying to keep Susan in the drawing alive, mm-hmm. but oh shit. The, the his reflection is changing shit. So, oh, she there's something on the ground. There's it's like she gives me ice cream. Ice cream drips off and she slips. Well, don't worry. Here's a pillow. The pillow's got broken glass all over it, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, I'll catch her. I was like, and then you throw her into the broken glass, <laughs> ruining the drawing. It's funny. It's like a tic tac toe. So this is his big move. This is the this is the point in which conversations with your reflection. That could mean anything and a couple of bad dreams, staying up all night, watching documentaries about spiders. We've all been there. Changes. And it's interesting what they chose to show, I feel, in this film. Because I find how horror treats murder 
tells you a lot about the type of horror movie that they're trying to make. I think that when they beeline for something very graphic, they're trying to give you a very visceral experience. And and what does that do? But they seem more interested, or Andrew Getty seemed far more interested in the psychological breakdown of this character and letting you know that murder is happening. Those scissors that I love, those yeah. giant fucking scissors that I wish that I had a pair of. I mean, the kind of... Like slip mouth woman scissors. Yeah, or the kind of scissors that Bugs Bunny might use to, like, let an anvil go or something. Yeah, these are giant um, butcher's scissors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, To the cat, there is no interpretation. We know what happens to the cat. And just to let you know, though, we get some missing time here, and we find out that, well, Dennis hasn't just killed that cat at this point. He's killed... Lots of dogs and lots of cats. Yeah, he's a whole cooler full. Yeah, yeah, So he spent the whole day killing little tiny animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's going down into his new hole, and he's going to put on carpentry stuff and safety goggles, and he's got a bunch of books about forensics. Taxidermy. Yeah, these are tapes. These are books on tape, which was very confusing for me. And listen, this film came out in 2017, but it, a lot of it was filmed many years ago. Starting in 2002. So there are little things in the film that show the movie's age. So you look at the TV that he's looking at, and it's a flat screen tube TV so that you might see in the early 2000s. And their cell phones are old cell phones and, and et cetera, et cetera. So he's getting his Books on tape, not Audible, not in an app on his phone. It's it's straight up books on tape. But they just look like DVDs to me. Which is doubly confusing because everyone keeps calling them cassettes. Cassettes. I was like, this is not a cassette. It's a DVD, isn't it? I don't know. It's not a VHS case either yeah, at yeah. all. So, yeah. And we think that they're films all of this time. Yeah. Until... Uh, and it did it did confuse me. I don't remember hearing the books on tape part, but I do remember that he's getting from the guy at the bookstore... And it's like, well, I don't know. You can get all kinds of stuff at the bookstore now. Yeah, you used can get to, and, socks at the bookstore and, yeah. and cups and pillows. Well, I used to get VHS tapes from Chapters. That's where I got a big chunk of my horror collection was at the Chapters at South Keys. Really? I'm okay. not even joking. That's crazy. Everything from Halloween to Evil Dead to all that stuff, I got yeah. it at Chapters. Wow, okay. They okay. sold movies very inexpensively there. And books on tape. And books on tape. In the did. early 2000s. In the early 2000s, yeah. My God. Yeah. Yeah. So we figured out that mystery. So it, it does add add to like sort of the Lynchian feel of all of this, though. Mm. You know, people going into it thinking that it might be as, as wonderful as The Room is as far as the worst movie ever made mm-hmm. uh, because it was, you know, written by this one guy and directed by this one guy and it was all paid for by some sort of mysterious funds. Um, same sort of idea with Andrew Getty, but not at all because it is an actually wonderful film and it's very competent film. He's a very competent filmmaker and he was a very good writer as well. Very solid writer, I think. Um, but it does have sort of that weird soap opera Lynch feel Mm -hmm. that portions of the room have. Especially in certain scenes, a lot of the country club scenes to me fall within that category where I feel almost like I'm watching a different thing. I do find those instances far less interesting, especially when Dennis graduates from animals to children. Yeah, a boy or a girl, it doesn't matter. It has to be a kid. But why? Wait, wait, hang on a second here. How do you make the logic leap to killing kids? How do you make the logic leap to killing kids? Because it's okay. Everybody does it. 
I mean, you don't know how many times you've sat down for a meal and eaten someone you know. What? Yeah, everybody does it. That's the way they'll know that you're getting smarter. This is a big wall that Dennis hits with this. This takes a lot of convincing. This is a far more difficult thing to convince Dennis of than killing animals. But he doesn't waver too much longer. And he does end up killing just one boy. Three kids. Oh, three. Yeah. He spends the whole afternoon killing kids. The whole afternoon killing kids, and he's covered in blood, and then we don't see these murders happen. We see the implication of a murder about to happen, and then we're back at the country club, and that's where I really had this realization, yeah, I really don't want to spend too much time on anything graphic, which, to me, I'm of two minds of it. Mm-hmm. One, I think that it doesn't... I, I, I think that the film works the way that it does... Because of the restraint they showed with the violence. And perhaps, you know, for some people, you know, killing kids is is like showing killing kids is a bit much. Uh, And I'm not saying that, like, I need these elements to be present in a film for me to enjoy them. But it does, again, tell you the type of film that he wanted to make where he's like, no, 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 I don't want to do any of that. It's not more interesting. We're back to the country club. Unfortunately, we don't know that, though, because there is at least one deleted scene that ends up on the DVD of Dennis uh, having a little bathroom break right before he goes to have a, a bath in the mm-hmm. morning. On that weird morning where everyone wakes up completely out of sorts, where Dennis goes to have a bath, um, where he gives himself manual pleasure mm. while watching a very messed up thing on a television that's in the bathroom uh, with a cheese grater. And it creates a lot of blood. A lot of blood. It is very gory. Um, and even though it doesn't, again, show a hell of a lot either, it, it shows a hell of a lot more than we've seen so far as far as gore. So we don't know what ends up on the cutting room floor in this film, but taking it at face value, even with the deleted scene. Yeah, there. It, the movie is really about Dennis. It's not about what Dennis is doing. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it is about this very slow corruption. Now, when... When this demon decides to truly reveal itself, this reflection reveals himself to not be genuine. He refers to himself as Legion, for we are many. This is a very famous story that even among biblical scholars is a bit apocryphal. They like it, it is mentioned, but a lot of people don't believe that it actually happened. It was more of a, of a story. And it's crazy. People in the Bible say, well, no, 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 no. This is uh this was the made up. This was the made up story. That is the idea of, of, of the first exorcism about them coming, uh, Jesus uh, coming across this thing that referred to itself as Legion, which is the idea that has been interpreted endlessly as this multifaceted evil presence comprised of many evil uh, souls. Or that it is that one portal soul where any demon could enter in or through mm-hmm. and that it contains the capacity mm-hmm. to bring forth a legion of demons. But, uh, it could be interpreted, like you said, thousands of different ways. At its most base sense, the people who would be watching this film and be like, oh, well, he's just rubbing off the exorcist. Yeah, I mean, but I, I mean, obviously, the like that it, this predates any uh, modern literature or film yeah uh, they're, they're new to this whole theology game 
if yeah they're, if they're really yeah. rolling their eyes that hard at this mm-hmm. and uh, from then we do something that i've never seen before which i think is quite unique and again we're talking about the different ways that you can film a mirror this this idea about putting two mirrors together we've all seen we've all done this i used to do it obsessively as a kid me too my in my grandparents house my grandfather uh had his own bathroom it was in it was it was in the same room that the laundry room was and he had his old-timey shave kit and all this kind of stuff but there was a hand mirror that hung just next to the actual mirror and it was so you know my grandfather could like you know do his 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 shaving and stuff like that i would always almost every time i was in that bathroom take the mirror out put it towards the bathroom mirror and then just show the infinity of reflections farther than your eye can perceive and within that is where Legion lies. When Dennis shows his his multiple multiple reflections to infinity, one of those reflections all the way down layers Legion, and he gives like a little goofy wave and and all that a kind of stuff. A little goofy wave. It's true. It mm-hmm. is. Um, but that also heralds quite a few more scenes of this where we see that row of reflections and something happening way down there where mm-hmm. the actual Dennis or a, a different actual Dennis or the actual demon is. And it gets closer and closer slowly mm-hmm. um, if you're if you're keeping score. And it, it, it really establishes dread. And, and I will say in terms of... I, I, it's just a big old timey truck. Yeah. Yeah, I I will say that what this film does to really what I will say about this film in terms of the dread that it can create if this movie is frightening or not I did find myself not scared of of any particular scene but there's a lot of surreal imagery in and around the ideas of dreams and I and I think that the reactions that it got from me where oh yeah that was very unnerving if this was a dream that i was having that would be really fucking freaky the, uh here's a spider and it's sucking me dry here's uh me getting zipped open and and like this idea and as we've all been there where we've almost had this sense of um what do they call them waking dreams or yeah. and, and 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 stuff like that where you feel like not in control of your body and you feel pinned down and and that kind of thing and being zipped open like there's a lot of really weird bizarre imagery that happens here that i think is pretty fucking creepy and if it would get you in the right mindset like i do find i do think that a lot of people could be scared by this film just just how fucking weird certain scenes are and how they can stick with you um and and i think that it it it, it so it, it'll disturb you just by the content alone because Dennis is doing something in the basement. We know that he has killed animals. We know that he has killed people. And we know that he is graduating to adults. Yeah. Because not only is his reflection, well, is this demon, uh, the storyteller. I'm going to have to call him because I'm tired of calling him a demon. Because he's a demon, sure. But he's not uh, a demon the way that we would traditionally expect a demon to behave like or look. Really? Uh and Dennis seems to think of him as a storyteller as well. So like the storyteller has been convincing Dennis that he needs to kill people that are close to him. And, you know, for going that, Mildy's on her way. Mm-hmm. So there's a really perfect scapegoat because Mildy's going to take you away. Mildy's on her way here right now with the cops, which almost sounds like a fib. Uh, it's not, though. Mm-hmm. It's not. The, the, the police are there. And he will reflect back to 
an adult that he did kill, technically speaking, although the card did most of the work. And and that was the first time that we really get to see what could you call it Dennis is capable of. Yeah, in a way, what the storyteller is capable of, because at this point, he's being pushed into the mirror. Yeah, he's been pushed into the mirror. But even before he is he is officially pushed into the mirror and replaced, when he kills Susan, he Susan is still, who, by the way, is the very attractive ice cream lady who he likes quite a bit. There is still this reflection. Uh, there is still this presence of Michael Berryman magic that is allowed. It's almost this scene plays almost like a haunting faucets going, jangly stuff going, and then we see... Twitching mouse and the death traps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That blood spilling and the life leaking out of its very soul mm. will be opening a portal for pure evil. Mm-hmm. And this is where Dennis tries to ask out Susan finally with, with this kind of a cute, clever way, and she rejects him, and all the things that this storyteller, this evil presence was saying to him about who would want to fuck a retard who like that's the problem is that she'll never want to be with you because look at you and who would want to be with somebody like that this is where he's really bringing him down and when she says it doesn't work between us yeah um she throws that all of all of that in her face yeah and and runs out of the store yeah so she goes back to 10 with that dead mouse and the running tap which it is a very halloween horror scene it is set up that way and then he comes out of the fucking ceiling, practically. Like a ninja. Like a ninja, and then he drops down. This, he is he is demonstrating superhuman abilities. He's got his fucking knife, and he chases her chases her out of the building, and she gets hit by a car. The next time that he kills an adult, he just stabs some fucker in the face and chucks him out a window. One of the things that I will say is I find it buck wild about how aggressively this person can just kill people, and no question... And I suppose this is, Getty didn't feel the need to tell any this part of the story, but you're dealing with a town that all of a sudden pets have gone missing in the immediate era, children have gone missing in the immediate area. I mean, you could Susan's death, all right, traffic accident. You a could, dead guy fell out of the window at monsoons. Yeah, West. Like this guy. I know it's it's inexplicable that no one notices. These yeah, it, it, it's possible that this is happening so quickly. That they don't have time to catch up. And from what we can see, he's taking the body. So people are just going missing. Yeah. Which is not technically against the law. But people theoretically are related to people and and, and shit like that. So, Especially the kids. I can see them not noticing that all these animals are missing. And this is all happening, you know, within a span of like two days or something. So it is a lot. That or if it's even happening at all when you think about it. But we'll get to that. But, Soon enough. but when Dennis kills this random motherfucker at Monsoons, it doesn't elicit the same thrill. No, he's pretty and he just did it pissed for no about it too because he's like, "Whoa, what is happening to me? I didn't, you didn't tell me to kill that time." He says mm-hmm. to the storyteller, and the storyteller has some, um, you know, if you want to talk about reflections of Andrew Getty, and we all like thanks to news, we know that he was a uh, very drug addicted and the complications that led to his death stemmed from drug abuse. Uh, His reflection has a really interesting conversation with him about having to graduate to stronger shit Mm -hmm. because puppies and kitties and then little kids weren't cutting it. And this is where he has to graduate now after this to people that he knows and people that he loves. Mm -hmm. You can see that what he's circling around is this presence wants him to kill his brother, John, or at the very least, John's girlfriend, Lydia. 
Yeah. Who wouldn't want to kill a bitch named Lydia? I know, right? It's uh-huh. an evil name. That is an evil name. Biblical. <laughs> and this is where one of the more surreal scenes happens. Well, a sequence of events, really. Because after Monsoons, this horrible, horrible fucking pizza place. It's like a shitty Chuck E. Cheese or something where they get pizza and Diet Coke and... and, and, and strawberry milkshake. Strawberry milkshake. Then we see big, anim- scary fucking animatronic shit. And John explains to Dennis how the animatronics work and, and all that kind of shit. The only thing that's really scary is the singer on the, this the, like weird animatronic stage. Because it, it looks like a... It, it looks kind of like a ghost monkey in a rain slicker. Yeah. And there's something about yellow rain slickers that is, is just innately terrifying in horror film, thanks to Alice Sweet Alice. And oh, yeah. <laughs> um kind of looks like he's wearing a weird Alice Sweet Alice mask. It kind of does when you think about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Don mostly dad explains all of this to Dennis, and Dennis yeah. is like, I did not understand a word you just said. I feel like he understand, understood a little bit of it. <laughs> oh, I think so too. I think he's pretty much got it mapped out in his mind entirely how yeah. animatronics work. Now. Yeah, he might be the greatest fucking animatronics person ever to exist. Well, that's how a virtuoso genius operates. You know, you show them something once, even components of it, and holographically they figure out, reverse engineer it within moments and understand not only how to remake this, but how to make it better. Mm hmm. So this is where Lydia and John wake up feeling so drained, so drained and tired and out of sorts. Yeah, like they're hungover, but they didn't drink anything and they oversleep. So it's just weird. It's generally weird. Mm -hmm. Um, So then they just go out about their day with this weird, confused look on their face. Yeah. And you know what's weirder? Getting a coffee at an ice cream shop. I don't think it's all that weird, but it seems to be the only shop that they know that for some reason they really eat a lot of ice cream. I don't I don't They go out to eat a lot. They're that couple that are constantly going out and eating for every meal. It's like how these people end up in debt so much is yeah, because like, they Does John say he has a job? Nope. Yeah. Does the girlfriend have a job? No. They hang out at the country club all the time. Yeah. So why they couldn't go somewhere nicer for coffee is beyond me too, but I, I get it. You know, they got to keep it close. And you get it, it was was probably thinking, "Oh, what do you mean job? No one has a job. Everyone just <laughs> unless you're working at an ice cream parlor. That's your job." Gods and clods. Oh my god. <laughs> but they're having this really weird day where they're just going around and they don't know anybody. And I think this might be very weird if they were professional socialites. I don't know. Well, maybe they are. Maybe that's what they do. And they do, you know, hang out in these very small little goat paths. They go to the ice cream store. They go to the park. They go to the country club. And they go to the bookstore. Yeah. And that is their day as far as, oh, and like their therapist. Yeah, they go his weird therapy sessions. And lately, even he's been meeting the therapist at the country club. So, like, he even has to go less places in a day. But those are the only places that these people fucking go. So I can I can see them doing their circuit, if you will, and not seeing people they recognize. Like, I've walked into the cafe that I frequent and seen all new staff before. Um, and it doesn't, but it doesn't freak me out. Usually, when I go out, I kind of hope I don't see anybody that I I know because I'd rather have my time to myself I usually have something on my mind or a podcast in my ears and I, i'd rather just go about my day without seeing anybody so it's the opposite problem mm-hmm. 
they want to see somebody that they know and recognize or that will acknowledge their presence Mm -hmm. and they don't they don't see anybody they recognize until they meet up with a bookstore guy holy fuck that dude does not want to have a random encounter. He's wearing a shirt that says fuck off. He's wearing or a shirt fuck that you. says fuck you. <laughs> yeah. And he right away is like, whoa, whoa, you guys are all loud and stuff. And it's kind of freaking me out. Yeah. And he, he doesn't even look like he wants to be in this movie, really, let yeah. alone talk to anybody. So he's perfectly cast for this role. Mm-hmm. He He's just like, you guys are weirding me out. And he acts very weird, too, which is kind of cool. Um, they have an encounter with Matt McGrory. Yeah, very famous. We want to talk about people that have a unique look about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a, a man who you know from Devil's Rejects, A House of a Thousand Corpses, Big Fish. That was another very large, uh, big movie that he was in. He's a big man. Ten feet tall yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Massive. And massive. Very unique voice, very unique face, very, very unique. His limbs are so very long with giganticism, I suppose. Yeah, yeah it's, it's something like that. And he died uh, a few years ago. Well, a lot of years ago now, I guess. But mm-hmm. this would this would have been his, technically his final film presence, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. But and and it's and it's definitely one of those scenes where I was like, oh man, it looks like he's gonna tear John's head off. Yeah, and he has um, a, a, this is the largest car I can afford. Sort of speech. He, yeah. he vents, and he's like. You want to ask me what's wrong with me? Nothing. Everything's just dandy. <laughs> it's quite a quite a scene, and I like it a lot. I like his his inclusion in this, even though it's a real bit part. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's really really effective too. And it's another thing, like as far as this is a statement of having really interesting portrayals of the many facets of personalities of people who would typically be labeled as developmentally delayed or challenged in one way or another or differently abled. Um, just how many variances of personalities and how many variances of attitudes towards their afflictions they would have or voice to other people. Mm-hmm. And Matt McGrory does a good job laying it on the line right here and manhandling this tiny man, <laughs> which I think is hilarious to see somebody made into an ant under Matthew McGrory's stra- yeah. stature. Well, and no, that the camera is positioned just above his shoulder. So, I'm, so probably John, 11 feet in the air. <laughs> John looks like a child. Yeah. Like, yeah. just a fucking child. I don't know how tall Sean Patrick Flannery is, but he's not, like, short as a me. No. He's probably somewhere in between you and my height. Probably that like sweet average. spot. Average height, yeah. Average height. Yeah, made to look like a child. It's it's great. Because I, if you've seen, like, in uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, it gives you a pretty good uh, idea of how tall Matt Regori was. And how big his fucking hands are. Mm-hmm. I think his fingers overlap when he's holding the wrist of this grown man. It's crazy. Mm. But yeah, anyway, enough about Matt from Glory. Um, they yeah. When they do meet up with the bookstore guy, they're like, yeah, it looks like you guys have had mixed up books. Dennis has been getting all these weird books. And he's like, yeah, I know. They're totally weird, eh? I guess what the bookstore guy is talking about, this other person's books that he's been mixed up with, are even weirder. Mm-hmm. Than the taxidermy books, which really are Dennis's books. Dennis yeah. really is looking at forensics books and taxidermy books. Mm-hmm. And he's listening to visions of death, right? Visions of death. And this is where a lot of a lot of the film gets laid out in the line in this moment because this is the culmination of John's tell. He's got a coin tell when he's lying. This is lion coin. This is lion coin. He taps a coin anytime he's lying about something and about what happened. There's a few things that are eye roll worthy in this. 
Um, not as many as other people gripe about. And there are a few moments where I'm like, okay, there, Mr. In Camera Effects guy. Um, but this is the only real instance I could see of really amateurs writing, which the coin tapping thing, like there's one thing to have somebody have something that they do when they're lying that's noticeable to even the casual observer. Um, but this coin tapping thing, I mean, maybe if he was a coin collector, maybe if he always jingled a pocket full of change too, so we would equate this guy with having coins or change, but what, he just fiddles with this one particular coin all the time? It's his lucky lion coin or something? If you were to just say tapping, if it was just tapping... Tapping a pen. He's tapping a salt shaker in one scene. Mm-hmm. But he's mostly agitated. He's not even talking during that scene. So it doesn't help with this whole ruse that he taps this coin whenever he lies. I mean, anyone would be like, oh, I'm about to lie. Better put the coin in my pocket. Yeah. And, and why this has to be pointed out to him as if he wouldn't have noticed already and been in control of it in some way. Unless it's a, a, a complete tick and he can't stop doing it. But this is where we reveal not only are the books Dennis's, which was his main lie. There's a weird smell coming from this prohibition hole. Well, it's okay to have a stinky basement if you're reading the right books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it turns out that these are the these are the books, and so John can figure out that his brother is up to something pretty fucking sinister. But beforehand. He's going to have a conversation with Lydia. Now, Lydia's wanted to get married. Lydia wants to have children, but she does not want to be responsible. She just want to get saddled looking after Dennis. Not really in a shitty way, but listen, I understand he's related to you, but I didn't. I don't want to buy into this for the rest of my life where we have to take care of a 30-year-old child. And it's not only that, too, and John totally agrees with her on this point, is that it is ruining him. He has no personality. He's admitted as much to his therapist. He's worried for himself. He is a ticking time bomb. He can't handle the stress anymore. And she can't marry that because there's nothing she could do for him mm-hmm. unless he does something to get his life under control. But beyond the, the basic obligation that John feels because it's his brother, younger brother, it is also his fault. Which is a really wonderful bit in this film. And I like Lydia's reaction very much because on one hand, she's like, you did this to him with an all, like just barely accusatory look like you are the lowest scum or mm-hmm. how could you hide this? Or does mm-hmm. Dennis know Like all these things are sort of wrapped up in her one very accusatory statement. And right away, her other point of view is like, well, we're going to have to talk to Dennis about how things are going to change when I move in. Mm -hmm. Because she just totally accepts all of this. Yeah, she gets it. She understands that this is not a conversation about, oh, you have to just get over it and get over your guilt and then then we can live together. He has to go somewhere. She understands where that guilt is coming from, why he feels so responsible for Dennis. It all makes sense to her now. Yeah. And a lot of it makes sense to us too. Yeah, Yeah. I, I definitely get where he's coming from in this revelation and... Lydia goes off to go and get Dennis. It's one of those it's one of those situations where why? Why are you going to get Dennis by yourself? It makes no sense. Why don't you both just go get Dennis and then take him out to dinner? But it's one of those things where we need to separate these characters. She needs to go to Dennis's place or John's place, which is a murder scene at this point, because not only the fact that there's like a bunch of like heaped dead corpses of children and all the kinds of shit in this place, but 
Mildy, old moldy Mildy, mm-hmm. showed up with two cops, mustachioed individuals. Wiggum and mustachio. Yeah, Wiggum and mustachio. Seriously, because he's like, oh, what is this, food in here? man?" <laughs> and then basically needs to go eat. One of the cops gets separated. And mustachio separated. is like, Lou. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they get off quite brutally, too, yeah. which I enjoy very much. But we know and that that's just happened, basically. Yeah. And this is when Dennis is, for all intents and purposes, gone. This is where the reflection, the presence, the demon, the storyteller, however you want to interpret it as, Legion, pushes Dennis into this place, this dark place. And he said... Going back on his initial lie of you you can be in here and you'll be happy for the rest of your life and I'll be out here and I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And he says, when I was in here, you said I'd be happy for the rest of my life. And he said, oh, Dennis, you're not alive anymore. Which is wonderful. And I, again, like have to say, it's not that hard to pay attention to this. It's not that hard to follow this. This is a thread that they've been discussing him and his reflection all the way up till now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like hard to, to get no, why Dennis is acting so strange now. It's very straightforward. And it is. I, you know, and I really like if you were paying attention at all, a lot of the things that Dennis does that are deeply philosophical, the things that Dennis does that are um, a bit highly intelligent, the things that Dennis comes to conclusions of that are like very complex ideas that he can boil down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the subtleties that he can understand and see through what people are saying and understand what they mean. Um, he was a genius. He was a genius, yeah. He was a, a child prodigy before he was pushed down the stairs and woke up and couldn't read all mm-hmm. of a sudden. This was a kid that wrote novellas, had advanced theories, was a wonder kid, but had it all taken away from him. So if you had noticed these things about Dennis, it seems even more profound to have this like linchpin moment where the the truth is revealed and the driving force behind Dennis's personality in a way. Um, so now we get to see that he did in fact understand everything about anim- animatronics. He he really did. Now to to create what he ends up creating, I guess what all these bodies were needed for is part of this little play. When he's first introduced to the reflection too, he's telling jokes and he's having sort of a back and forth and has this whole like, oh, thank you, thank you, you're too kind. Oh, stop throwing your panties on the stage. So he's a bit of a showman. Mm -hmm. Um, That comes into play too, really soon actually, because Lydia ends up there, of course, before John can get there or get the cops. I like how he yells at the bookstore guy too, like, call the cops. And the bookstore goes like, I don't want to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Lydia shows up there and walks in the door and hears a baby crying. Yeah. And instead of leaving. Like I would. I would. Immediately. She goes to this baby and this baby looks fucking creepy. We're talking like beyond. It's not uncanny, uncanny valley creepy either. Like it's. It's a gross little baby. Anyway, the point... It's probably dead. It's, it's probably, probably supposed to be a dead baby. It's probably a dead baby. It, it basically just turns into Dennis, and he pops out of there. He does a little magic show, a little sleight of hand. Alakazam. does his little trick, and the knife is gone. Where is that knife? Well, it's lodged deep into Lydia's chest. She's not dead, though. She's out of it. She's in shock. So even these like close quarter kills, uh, where there's lots of opportunity... To have all kinds of crazy effects. They mm-hmm. just... Alakazam. Yeah, the knife is just in her. And, the, and then we get what is easily the most graphic thing in the movie. 
the drilling of Lydia's head while she's still technically alive. You look way too stoked to have said that out loud. <laughs> I love this scene. I love what her eyes do. I love the sound of the crunching bone. I love the whir of the metal on skull. Yeah. And it's funny because even after he's drilled into her several times, she doesn't even really seem quite dead yet until he blasts her head cavity with a fire extinguisher. Which is a brilliant, you know, really thoughtful thing here. I really enjoy the way that they, they, they did this with the pressurized gas mm-hmm. of some sort or another to blow the stuff out the top of her head, not unlike a crazy little whale. Um, mm-hmm. It also reminds me a little tiny bit of Edward Lee's um, book and film, Header, where these hillbillies are cutting holes into the heads of uh, living girls and they'll have sex with the hole in the head. Uh, until it kills them usually, but it mm-hmm. can zombify a person, not unlike what Jeff Dahmer's ideas were. Mm-hmm. Um, but or, this... or in the picture of the loved ones, drilling holes in the heads, pouring down uh, with boiling, boil, water. boiling water. Yeah. yeah, to cook their brain just so. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't need this person to live at all. Dennis is not looking for a sex toy. Dennis is not looking for a companion. Dennis is looking for a ventriloquist dummy. Mm-hmm. So needing to remove the head like the yolk from an egg to make so much pasanki. <laughs> That's what he basically does. Like blowing an egg. You ever blow an egg? Uh, no, I've never blown an egg. You never make pasanki? No. Oh, well. Anyhow. Now he has a shell of her former self. Oh. She's empty inside. Yeah. And John finally gets home, goes, everyone knows, well, I mean, John and Lydia know what this prohibition hole is well Meldy finds a basement Mildy, too but she hears like construction noises which is what jo- drew John down there mm-hmm. um, once he realized that Dennis was hanging out down there too Dennis has made himself a little stage and he has got himself a little ventriloquist dummy and John sits down in the chair and first he's worried he goes there because he's like say there's a crime in progress call the police when he walks in the guns on the floor and there's a little science it's showtime in one minute yeah and then he sees oh there's Lydia, and it seems like she's fine. She's in a little costume, and she's talking. He's like, is this like a special surprise for my birthday I forgot I had? But then Lydia starts saying things, and Dennis starts saying things. And it's the truth, the truth about what he knows about what happened to him, Dennis knows. Now, where Dennis is in here is hard to say at this point. And it's hard to say why John doesn't say, hey, Dennis, your speech impediment is gone. Hey, Dennis, how come your one arm isn't all leaked? And I know a gentleman that has what he calls a fruitcake arm, which would behave much like Dennis's arm. Mm -hmm. It would be like palsied. Um, So forgive me for saying fruitcake arm because that's what one of my friends calls his arm. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he's like, how come you're not palsied? How come, you know... You can talk fine. Using those 50-cent words. You're using more than 50-cent words. And how come you seem to know all about how you were given this this, um, affliction when... You had no memory of it. Up did until did now. Lydia tell him? Yeah. In, in, he doesn't in... question any of this. He seems to almost be like, hey, "This is an uncomfortable show," and then he realizes he's crazy glued to the arms of the chair, which yeah. I think is kind of hilarious. Considering part of the problem with the Getty House right now, like this particular Getty House, is that they had to clean up a lot of it. Apparently, the house was just in horrible disrepair, probably from having a fucking movie filmed in it, and. Um, 
uh, ne'er-do-well, life O'Reilly, druggy kind of party guy that did nothing but work on his film for 15 years, run this household, um, and probably not hire cleaners or clean it himself. So a lot of like the antiques were in disrepair and a lot of them need to be refurbished if they could be. And this chair is probably one of them because looking at it, I'm guessing, you know, it's probably a $30,000 Louis XIV wing back carved oak chair that he's crazy glued to. He's not probably actually crazy glued to it, but there is some sort of effect going on there to make it look like he's crazy glued to it. So whatever it is probably wasn't good for leather. Mm. Yeah. Well, he's going to tell him a little story, which basically is the story of Dennis and John's childhood. He's used the body of the the bodies of the children that he's killed to be little marionettes. The, there's the body of his therapist who has gone missing. There's, I don't like this story. <laughs> there's a story about Rod and Todd. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. But I really do like the ingenuity because there's one point where I'm like, okay, is Dennis going to get up and be the showman here? Is he going to get up and MC all of this? But no, he stays there with his very macabre looking hand puppet that oh Lydia yeah her has eyes become. going in all fucking directions oh, that's awesome i think it's pretty awesome yeah um fingers through her mouth and shit everyone is attached to cords and stuff and he's even got some really cool effects as far as like the clothes ripping off the one cop who was playing the part of the doctor who now becomes the ringmaster mm-hmm. um yeah really wonderful you can see where all of these bodies were used Except for Mustachio. I didn't see the body of Mustachio. Yeah. And then you th- you see Millie sitting in the corner. And I guess, ah, she, he maybe didn't have an idea for her. So she's just sitting into that. Oh, my God. She's a spider. Yeah. A giant spider made of the limbs of the dead. Mm-hmm. I, I like that a lot. This metaphors of spiders, of course, because of the fact that spiders are isolated creatures that are cannibals. They will eat their own family members. That's why spiders stay by themselves. Um. And that is this idea about brothers eating brothers and shit, right? And this is all kind of to give John this abattoir puppet show. To push him over the edge. To push him over the edge. So it's like, it's a madhouse, (laughs) a madhouse. And he drives John to suicide, blows his fucking brains out in that chair in the very gun that was on the floor that said showtime was in one minute. Because this spider is advancing on him and it is driving John insane and it is threatening to him and it will kill him. He's surrounded by dead bodies. What is the end game does he figure? Dennis is not helping him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. His... I guess the spider attacks Dennis as well. Mm-hmm. John blows his brains out and then all of a sudden Dennis can feel nothing but arms and hands all over him. Mm-hmm. But it's not. Is this reality come crashing down? It is. All those police officers that they didn't want to get called are called. And he is taken out of that house screaming like a banshee. Mind you, we see all this uh, start happening through the reflection of a mirror. Just saying that, mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, this could also not be reality. But we trust cops. We trust, like, a, a gaggle of cops. We making do. that gaggle of cops sound like they do in South Park. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> And they pull him away. And then we have almost a, a psycho moment where you just have him reflecting, like sitting there. And next to him is a legion of his own reflections. And then hidden within those is 
the one true Dennis. The Dennis we actually have come to know and love and recognize at a glance. Mm-hmm. The um, palsied and very worried Dennis. Mm-hmm. Who's scared. very fucking scared. Scared. Know? I mean, he... What this storyteller, what Legion has done is tear his life apart. His brother's dead. His Lydia's dead. The His ice cream shop girl crush is dead. Everyone he knew is dead. He's never going to be free. He's never going to be back in that house. Someone's probably stepped on his hamsters. Everything sucks. And he is trapped in a prison of his own making. The end. The end. Ta-da! Ta-da. Alakazam. Alakazam. Where's that knife? I really thoroughly enjoy this film. And poo-poo to anyone who says that it's all over the place and it's a mess. And this is what you get when you give a druggie millions of dollars in a camera. Like, people have said some pretty, like, really rash things about this, I guess. They thought they were, you had said, like, you, you guessed that they're looking for something different when they go into this. Sometimes I was kind of turned off personally by the very beginning of this when it starts with the voiceover and the carnival scene and the little boy talking to his mom. And I was like, oh, is this what we're doing? It seems it it starts off and it feels a little pretentious. A little pretentious is right. A little poetic. It's like, okay, I had a diary. My mom told me I was cool. So I got this idea for this film. And, 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 And sometimes you can get a little shitty even by saying, oh... Hang on a second here, guys. Everyone settle down. The the fucking trust fund baby is going to tell me what life's all about. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm interested. Yeah. You right. know, that, that you can have that shitty attitude if you want. Yeah. Um, of course, that wasn't where I was. I was genuinely excited to see this. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to just, just be better than the room. Just that's all I asked. Just be better than the room, and that was not a hard thing to. That is not. I, mean, I could. I could maybe do something on my phone in the bathroom that's better than the room, mm-hmm. but like. <laughs> This is a fucking very good film. It brings up a lot of really interesting ideas. It does a lot of very interesting things with marginalized individuals. It has a lot of a lot of things to say about uh, lies and fronts and confronting your past. It has a lot of very deep things going on within it. And just a really cool horror story. And some really cool little tiny hooks like you need to kill a kitty cat. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy a lot about this film and I hope that more people go to see it and like maybe stop reading all about it maybe go and watch it and then pick up that rumor magazine I had watched the film before I really knew the details of the story because I forced it on you you did you put it in my hot little hands like we do and you made me watch the movie you made me you asked if I would watch it and I did yeah, and I didn't say we're doing this on the show. No, I was like, you, let me know what you think. Yeah, am I crazy? Like, yeah, I, I think upon a second viewing, I I do like it more. I think that w- what I am thoroughly impressed by is all the performances in the movie. Um, I like a lot of the special effects, and I love this. I love stories where demons take people over. I I, I love the stories. Maybe it's it's the the, the religious background in my family or or whatever you're, whatever it is, but I've always found stories like this very interesting. I love when I see movies having these dark presences adhering to the rules, classic rules of demonology and how the and, and I also like to see good people get torn apart by evil things and to show that it can happen and it makes it all the more tragic when, a truly innocent person becomes 
a very vicious serial killer and then his whole life is torn apart, right? And all because the, his initial reaction of, I don't want this mirror in here, was not listened to. Mm-hmm. And that was John's opportunity to get rid of that mirror, destroy it, sell it however you want, and just let your brother have his room. Even though that this this presence did call to Dennis initially, to every every time every second that, that mirror was in Dennis's room, it gained power and could influence Dennis more easily. And then Dennis has to let it in himself too. So. And then the mirror can be seen in its follow-up role uh, in Oculus. In Oculus, yeah. The uh, evil mirrors, yeah. Um, you know, so I, and I think that this film has a lot going for it. And uh, what I do, I do thoroughly believe that if you are a fan of horror, if you're a, ha- a fan of independent film, I mean, this is as indie as it gets. I know a very wealthy person made it, but he made it himself along with 800,000 key grips. But. Yeah, you gotta you gotta watch if you watch this film for anything aside from the fire extinguisher scene that I love so very much, watch it for the fucking credits, man. Because uh, yeah. once the final like artsy credits are over, that role is impressive, mm. and it really really explains to you in black and white exactly how many people and how many hands this went through. It's crazy, really. Yeah. But if, you, if you're a type of person that's sitting there thinking that you should make something or you want to tell your story however you want to do it, do it because at the very least you can know this is a perfect example of someone's idea and someone's story that they want to tell outliving them to the point in which you will never see what anyone thought of it. And in a way, it's quite interesting that how he died uh, is, is tragic no matter who it is and... But the, the, I suppose for me, the silver lining is that he got to make the thing that consumed the last part of his life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. If people really enjoy this and, you know, small, not not necessarily like little little filmmakers that could, but uh, really gifted storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, you can listen to a, to a podcast about this. And not just like my normal pluggity pluggery for Bind Torture cast and the wonderfulness <laughs> that is... Uh, that show and the wonderfulness that is the cast of Vine Torture cast because Luke Raymer has a film uh, called The Taxidermist that is in post-production right now and I, hopefully it won't take 15 years uh, or 10 end years of post life. the end of his life to create this film uh, I'm very excited to see it the, the trailer is online if you, if you care to look and see some of what uh, some members of Vine Torture cast have up their sleeves um, a different podcast This is Horror Mm-hmm. Um, this is horror. We'll be talking to Nicole Cushing, and I have been waiting very, very long for more Nicole Cushing. I've heard her on podcasts before. She wrote a book that you know had that you know that gut punch feel when I read it, and it has a lot of the same sort of elements as The Evil Within in the the book Mister Suicide, and it is that bizarro horror, if you will where I'm not a fan of bizarro fiction whatsoever, but this film has elements of that, especially near the end. But just the idea of of how, what the conversations and the psychological tricks Dennis is playing on himself with the mirror and the mirror scape specifically reminds me a lot of what Nicole Cushing is doing in written fiction. So if you want to listen to sort of, maybe you get a glimpse of what's going on 
or what was going on in Andrew Getty's mind when he was conceiving of all of this and pulling all of his life experience and dreams and things he would know or hear or like or want to emulate and, and putting it into one thing. To hear Nicole Cushing talk about her work, I think, is, is something that's sort of in line with that. So, yeah, check out the This Is Horror podcast once you're done listening to uh, Splatter Pictures Dead Air or um, Panels of Blood. Mm-hmm. or Bind Torture Cast, and, yeah, the rest of our goddamn yeah, the, little tiny family of shows. Yeah, uh, by the way, speaking of Panels of Blood, if you guys haven't checked out the latest episode, I'd really like you to. I really liked uh, how it turned out. I got very emotional reading it. You did. For a little, like, when I first read your, your plug on that, I was like, oh, Wes, you're a big baby. You're, you're a big softy. But then when I was listening to the episode, I was like, oh, shit, yeah, you know what? I remember reading this and not getting choked up because I have no actual emotions. There's mm. nothing in my throat to choke. There you go. Um, so I did remember, though, how, how touching that is with the – there's a scene with a dog. But then, like, later on, mm-hmm. there's other things within that story that Archie goes through a lot mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that. So I could see how you would – I get, I get, I get very emotional when uh, when we're talking about um, idealistic families getting destroyed and torn apart and what that would mean. I mean, I have my own uh, amount of daddy issues, and so watching Archie have to kill his father was very upsetting. It took a couple of passes for me to get through that, and I used the most usable ones. And and I I remember there was a point that I edited out where I was swearing at myself. I was like, "Fuck, man, you have to get through this shit. You can't." <laughs> and then and then when I was editing the episode, I'm like, oh, 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 oh. "I'm like, good god." So anyway, um, I, I've gotten some really nice feedback on it. People seem to really like it. I'm genuinely proud of the episode, and I'm also gen like. One of the things that I, I, I think the reason why I decided to like try to not get it till I was reading it in my normal way where I'm not not emotional, but where I'm trying to get the emotion of the characters and you can't hear me just like breaking the my own narration through my own emotions is the fact that even though it's a dopey comic book, even the, it, it can make you feel things. And I think that was like why I decided to leave it in because it's a little vulnerable like I'm embarrassed like like it's embarrassing it would have been more embarrassing if you would have left your most blubbery cut, yeah my I'm most sure. blubber yeah for sure but like I also said this is why I'm doing this I'm not reading this to say look how look how dumb comic books are look how look how indifferent the writing can be I was like no look at look at how effective that this is an Archie comic book about zombies made you um, made me emotional and so and 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 I think that it's just like goes to like celebrating that type of stuff, which is why I left it in. No, and as proud as you, as you are of that episode, I'm sure that the creators are as proud that they were they they touch, achieved being able to touch somebody, yeah, especially somebody who's trying to not put on a front by any means, but being able to present this in a straightforward manner, yeah, so that other people can digest the story, yeah, properly, yeah. Um, but it is through through your filter, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm pr- I'm quite proud of it. It was a also- very good episode. It was very Thank good. you. Very Thank good you. read. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And also, uh, we were going to have some more sneak previews of the upcoming comic book, Teresa, Where the Darkness Takes Me. I have seen completed pages. They are gorgeous. I'm very excited. Good to hear. <laughs> yeah. So we're all done talking about uh, killing Lydia's, right, for the day? Yeah, we're all done about killing Lydia's. But every time we end a podcast, it's almost like a little death. Like an orgasm. Ew. God. That's going to haunt my dreams. Good segue.
into what's coming up next. What's coming up next is our commentary tracks, our Halloween specials. October is right around the corner. By the time this episode is out, we will be within October. And so the next episodes you guys are going to hear is the commentary track for the very first Nightmare on Elm Street. Followed hot on its heels by question mark. Question mark. Right now, from what I've seen in the polls, Dream Warrior seems to be doing a, a smidge better. It's got some. It's got some percentages, but uh, that's no way that the, the voting is still up. I had the thing for seven days. It's probably still going on. Well, by the time you hear this, it'll be over and it'll be a done deal. But at least at the time of this recording, there's still a couple of days left. So you guys can vote if you wanted to. And uh, I hope you did. Had an opportunity. Um, so if you're feeling like a Freddy's Revenge kind of kind of thing, yeah. you better get on that. You better get on that because it seems to be like Dream Warriors is going to win it. If you're in Team Dream Warriors, though, you know, yeah. tally-ho, tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends. Just make sure it can be a crushing victory over... Freddy's Revenge, and like we said before, just because we do one doesn't mean we're not going to do the other. And 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 the reason why we're even asking you guys is because I fucking love to make you guys happy, and that makes me happy. And Lydia just she sits there, you know. I just make it a face because I'm like it's not about making people happy. It's because we couldn't decide and didn't want to do three episodes in one month. Like hello, well, um, it's about me liking to make people happy. That's why I do this podcast. That's why you do everything you do, Wes. Yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, so I'm very excited to do Nightmare on Elm Street. It's been a long time coming. Um, I'm it's it's one of my favorite horror films. Though it's a lot of people's favorite horror films. So yeah, I'm I'm very pumped. I'm very pumped to do this. Cool. Also, a little tiny more pluggery. Uh, last episode, we were talking about The Art of Horror, Volume 1. Oh, yeah. uh, I did get a chance to sit down with the creator, and you can head over to ottawahorror.com and learn more about The Art of Horror. Mm-hmm. That was a very good interview. I enjoyed reading it, and you guys definitely do yourself a favor and, and uh, get in on that, because it seems like a really cool project. And uh, from last I heard, uh, the orders have been made, and these books are out to print, so that's cool. Good. Very cool. Good. Well, that's all I got. Well, then that's all there is. I'm Wes Knight. I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.